All right, if you want to open up to Acts chapter 2, before we get there, there's a story that takes place some 1,500 years or so before the time of Jesus, and the people of God are camped out at the base of a mountain called Sinai. And the people of God have just gone through this epic escape journey from one of the most powerful empires in the world, Egypt, where they had been enslaved for 400 years. And in this journey, they cross the Red Sea, they they go about 50 days into the desert, and they arrive at this mountain, and they're told to go there and to wait uh, for God to speak. And the story picks up in Exodus 19, and it runs to about Exodus 32 to 33, the story of what happens at Mount Sinai. Their leader, a man named Moses, goes up onto the mountain, and God speaks to him. And it, and it tries to describe what that experience was like, and it says it was like the storm comes, and it hits the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's like this roaring wind. And Moses gets up there, and he has this conversation with God. And in this conversation, what, what we have is this identity and calling that are given for the people of God. And, and God tells Moses that this group of people, the Israelites, are to be a a holy people, a a nation of priests set apart from everyone else. And and what we have here is like the birth of the people of of the nation of Israel. And they're given uh, this law, you know, the Ten Commandments that are written down on these tablets And this law signifies this relationship between God and his people. There's this covenant that is formed. And the law reveals what God desires for us to be in right relationship with him and with other people. And this back and forth is going on between God and Moses as he's developing this identity and he's speaking to this leader. Meanwhile, down at the base of the mountain, as this is taking place, Moses has been gone for a long time. And the the people of Israel are like, kind of starting to panic a little bit. And as that panic sets in, like what happens with the big crowds of people, the panic gets like worse and worse. And before you know it, it's like, it's like a scene out of like the Fry Festival, right? Like, you know, that, that whole thing that happened and everyone's kind of going crazy. This isn't what we were promised. What are we doing here? There's no food. Everyone's freaking out. It's like the Fry Festival meets like Lord of the Flies. Like they just all start turning on each other. And so, like, Moses is up there, he's talking with God, and he starts to hear this commotion, and he's like, what is going on? And it sounds like war has broken out, like, broken out in the camp, and so there's this chaos, um, Moses starts to head down the mountain, turns out that, like, everyone's drunk, everyone's just, like, out of their minds, um, 3,000 people end up getting, like, slaughtered in this chaos, and Moses comes down, and they have this, like, reckoning, and he says, here's what God has said to me, and and like what we have here is this, it's this wild story, but it's this story that, that they figure out like this is who we are and this is who's going with us and this is our mission. And it's, they're given this law and it's considered the birth of the nation of Israel at this Sinai moment, this wild story that takes place in Exodus. And I wanted to start with that because the, the chapter that we're looking at in Acts as we go through this book of Acts series in Acts chapter 2 If Exodus was the birth of the nation of Israel, this is considered the birth of the church in the New Testament. And I want to keep the story in mind because as we're reading it, you might be like, whoa, what's going on here? What kind of church did I just get involved in? Um, 
And some of you know this story in Acts 2. It's the story of Pentecost. And we'll just start reading uh, just the first 13 verses of Acts 2. Just read along with me. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Remember, this is after the ascension. Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem, and he's going to send his Holy Spirit. It says in verse 2, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came and rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And this is the story of Pentecost, the story where the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church. The Holy Spirit, as we look at this book of Acts, will find is essential to everything the church does. This Holy Spirit, this third member of the Trinity, Jesus dies, rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, and then sends his spirit to be with his people. In this spirit, everything that happens in the book of Acts is because this Holy Spirit is with them. The presence of God is with his people. And we don't really like to talk about the Holy Spirit, do we? Because it sometimes... <laughs> Because it gets a little weird, uh, depending on maybe, like, what denomination you grew up in, right? Like, so for some, it's like, if your hair is not on fire, the Holy Spirit's not here, right? And then for others, it's like, you're part of the frozen chosen, and you might stand up for worship, but maybe not, because, like, you, like we have these different understandings of what the Holy Spirit is, and these different experiences of what the Holy Spirit is, and we're not really, like, it just feels like this thing that's out of control that we don't always like to talk about. But it's essential to the church in Acts, and it's essential to, to everything that we do as the church. is the, the presence of the living God that is with us. And then you hear that word Pentecost. Here in the story, Pentecost, and you think, you know, there's Pentecostals, and maybe like we, we have kind of an understanding of what that word means. But what Pentecost is, Pentecost is simply the 50th day after Passover. The, the Pente it, was, it was a religious festival that, that celebrated 50 days after Passover. And in this agrarian society, they would celebrate it was a feast, this party where they get together and they celebrate. And what's interesting is if Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, that first Passover, like back in Egypt when when God's peoples are enslaved in Egypt and they come out and they cross the Red Sea and they end up at Mount Sinai, it's the first Pentecost. And here we have this, 
Pentecost story, something new is happening. In the first Pentecost, you have this birth of the people of Israel. And here in this story at Pentecost, you have the birth of the church in the New Testament. N.T. Wright commentating on this says, All Christians, not only those who call themselves Pentecostalists, derive their meaning from the first Pentecost. For a first century Jew, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. It was an agricultural festival, but Passover and Pentecost also awakened echoes of the great story of the exodus from Egypt when the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea and God rescued his people from slavery. Fifty days after Passover, the Israelites came to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. Pentecost is about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must carry out his purposes. And now Jesus has gone up into heaven in the ascension, and he is now coming down again, not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the dynamic energy of the law designed to be written on human hearts. The second Pentecost story, this birth of the church, and it eerily echoes that story in Exodus. I mean, just looking at some of the details of this story, from Exodus 19 to 35, that, that first Pentecost story, you have this people that are waiting to hear from God, right? They get out of slavery, and, and they're told to go here and to wait. And like when God does speak, there's this loud, thunderous voice, and it feels like a storm. Then there's this sound of war and chaos. It tells us that people are drunk. There's 3,000 people who are slain in this story. They're called to drive out the nations. And this is considered the birth of the people of Israel. They're given the law, right? The Torah, the tablets, the, the Ten Commandments are given to them. This is this identity piece for them to be the people of God on mission for God. And then in the second story, in Acts chapter 2, what you have is the disciples are waiting to hear from God. They're told to stay in Jerusalem. There's this violent wind. They're trying to describe this experience when the Holy Spirit comes. It's a sound of chaos they thought that people thought that they were drunk. I love that little detail at the end of the story. It's like some people thought they were drinking too much wine. 3,000 people, instead of dying, 3,000 people were saved. From every nation, they're called to go to every nation. So instead of like just, the, people are gathered from every nation and they're from every language and they're here in this moment and then they're called to go out to the nations. And this is considered the birth of the church. They're given the spirit. The presence of God is with them. These stories eerily echo each other. And this is, I think, an identity piece for the church. And, and part of what's happening here is this, this old covenant is all about the law. The law it identifies God's desires. It puts us in right relationship with him and with other people. And then here in the New Testament, this, like as N.T. Wright says, there's this new thing, the spirit that is the law printed on our hearts. Like we're, we're, we're people who are driven by the presence of God. We're a presence-driven church. God is alive. Jesus has risen from the dead, and his spirit is here with us. It doesn't mean that we throw out the old covenant. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul says this in Romans, where he talks about this idea of life through the spirit, where he says, in Christ there is no condemnation for the power of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do, Christ does on the cross. There's this new life that we have in the spirit. He, he talks about this through Galatians as well. And, and kind of, well, here, here's what the, the two things do. The law, the Old Testament, what the law does is it, it, it is given to show us what God desires. 
Like, to be, what, is, what does right relationship with us and God look like? What does right relationship with us and each other look like? The law was given to show us what God desires. The Spirit was given to give us God's desires. To give us, what does God desire? So our heart would be formed by him, and we would love the things that he loves. Our hearts would break for the things that break his heart. And this is why we use language like, this isn't about a, a religion. This is a relationship. We, we abide in this presence of God, and it does something inside of us, and our desires start to change. This is going to be a terrible example, but like as, as we abide in Christ and are, we, we give, are given his desires, it's like my wife and I, we've now been married for 18 years. We're getting ready to celebrate the 20th anniversary of our first date, and the old adage like, old married couples start to dress the same, like you've heard that. Like, we're starting to see that. Like, we'll be, like, getting ready for a date or going on a double date. We get ready, then we meet in the bathroom, and we're, like, matching. And it's like, oh, you're wearing that? Okay. Well, I had been planning on wearing this earlier. And, like, I don't, like something happens the longer you're married. You start to, like, dress the same. And I think the scary thing for me is I've been working with Tim Stansel for about seven years, and I'm starting to dress like him, too. So, like... We show up on Sunday and we're like, oh, we're twinning again. <laughs> Great minds, right? Like, something happens when you spend time with someone, but that's probably a bad example. Uh, another thing, like, when, you know, for Lent, I was doing this fast for Lent as we were getting ready for Easter and Resurrection, and so I removed from my diet, like, anything that was unhealthy, so sugar and dairy and uh, gluten and alcohol, and so I was basically eating, like, Fruit, veggies, and proteins, and that's it. And for like a week, I was miserable. And then for like another week, I was still miserable. But then by like the third week, I started to feel really good. And unhealthy food, it was like I stopped craving it. Like my kids would be eating like a cupcake, and I'm like, oh, that just, I would pass out if I ate that. Or like I don't want a Pepsi, that would just like rock my system. I wouldn't, like I realized my cravings started to change. And in fact, when I was done with the diet, I love breakfast burritos. Like, I could eat a breakfast burrito every single day and be happy. And as a staff, we eat a lot of breakfast burritos. The first week after the diet, I would eat like half a burrito, and I, I felt like my stomach would explode. And Tyler was like, yeah, you just got to push through that. Yep, <laughs> just got to get back. Your body will adjust, and you'll start to enjoy unhealthy things again. Like, there was, like, like, when you spend time and you're doing this thing that's developing this habit, like, your, your cravings change. And that's probably a bad example of it, but what happens with the Spirit of God, the living God that is in us? Like, he's given us the law to show us what his desires are, but then he's given us his Spirit to give us the desires of God. It changes how we live in this life when God is in us. There's something about the Spirit that, that uh, I love what D.L. Moody says, this old pastor in Chicago, says, you might as well try to hear without ears or breathe without lungs as try to live a Christian life without the Spirit of God in your heart. Let me read that one more time. You might as well try to live, you might as well try to hear without ears or breathe without lungs as to try to live the Christian life without the Spirit of God in your heart. See, the, this relationship that we have with God, what, what that that spirit is all about for us as a church is that we experience God. We experience the, the presence of the creator of the universe. We experience God. 
this presence that is with us. And for that early church, especially in the book of Acts, that what they believed wasn't just about like a theology or a head knowledge. What they were giving their lives to was something that they had experienced, the incarnation of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. This was something they experienced, and something as Jesus ascends to heaven says, this presence of God will come, and you will experience the living God. It is something that the people of God experience. It's real, and it's authentic. It changes us. It's interesting, this type of experience, the the presence of God in our life, like, if you look through scripture and say, what, is, what does it look like? What does it mean? What you're going to find is they're using all sorts of different language to describe this presence of God. Like in, in the early gospels, Jesus is baptized. It tells us that, that the presence of God, it, dis, the Holy, it descends like a dove from on high. We just heard in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, it was like, it was a fire and a wind. It was this thing that was unstoppable and powerful. In John 7, it's described as water. It's this thing that, that you, it, it can't be contained and it's life-giving. This presence of God. What you'll see is that there's all sorts of different ways God's people describe it throughout Scripture. It's not just something that you can bottle in or contain or put into a box or even systematically understand it. This is the, the, the presence of the creator of the universe that we're trying to understand. But when they experience it, they know this is real. The experience of the Spirit is something that we, we have this relationship with God. If it's not about religion, it's about this relationship. But experiencing God leads to an empowerment from God. This is the Holy Spirit. It empowers us as a people to do kingdom work. In Acts 1, as we were looking at a few weeks ago, the, the word the Holy Spirit, the word that's used is fortis. It means brave, strong, courageous, powerful, protection. It's where we get the word fort. The, this presence of God is powerful, that, that is with us. And it empowers us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this place. With this power comes um, a gifting. Uh, we, we see in Scripture there's, there's all of these spiritual gifts that are given to the church, to people in the church. And I think these are different than just, like, whatever skills you have. Like, you might have, like, mad skills. You might be really good at basketball or good at, like, different things. What these spiritual gifts are, these are, like, kingdom gifts that are given that edify the kingdom of God in the church. And, and so, like, there's a list of different gifts um, that, that, that all of us have, every single one of us, as the Spirit empowers us, is given different gifts to be used for the kingdom of God. I remember uh, taking an assessment when I was younger. There's like a list of all these different gifts, and I'm like, okay, what am I spiritually gifted in? Um, I think that one of the ways you learn about what your spiritual gifts are is just living out faithfully the context of a church community. But I, you could take assessments, and, and we would encourage people to take assessments of like, how is the Spirit empowering me with these different gifts? I remember for me, I, I took an assessment one time, and like my top gift was knowledge, and like my lowest, worst gift was wisdom, which was the application of knowledge. <laughs> and I remember like thinking that, I'm wise enough to know that's not a good combination. 
right? But you, you, you see these lists like throughout the New Testament scripture, Paul's writing about these different gifts. We're, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be part of this, citizens of this kingdom of God, this kingdom that is eternal, that plays out in this local context in the church. But that's what the Holy Spirit does is it empowers us to be the people of God. Another thing that it does is that um, the, the Holy Spirit, it, it, it intercedes for us. Romans 8 talks about prayer. And we, we go through things in life that are so difficult and challenging. And, and, and suffering is so real that there's times where we come into the presence of God and we're praying and we're not even sure how to pray. And yet there's this empowerment of the presence of God, the Spirit of God that intercedes for us. Us being available to pray and then the Holy Spirit meeting us just in that place in ways that we can't even understand. There's a power that comes from prayer. We're called to be a praying people, that, that we would be a house of prayer, lifting each other up, and this Holy Spirit intercedes for us with this power. And I say as a pastor, I, I don't always understand how prayer works, but prayer works. We're called to pray for each other. We're called to bring everything that we have before God, even the most difficult things that we go through, we, we can't understand where God's at in the, in the, the midst of the suffering. When we, we get bad news about friends or loved ones, we come to God in prayer, not having all the answers, but trusting that this presence of God, this Holy Spirit, meets us in this place with power. Another thing is what this power does is that there's freedom. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This Holy Spirit empowers us. It sets us free because we live in this world that we are just captivated by the world. There's things that entrap our heart. There's things that, that, that grab a hold and strangle our heart. And we get caught up in stuff that just sucks the life out of us, our friends, our family. The Holy Spirit gives us, it, it empowers us. It sets us free, sometimes supernaturally, from things. So where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we experience this presence of God that it also empowers us. The fortis, it, it makes us, it, it gives us, there's something inside of us. We are resurrection people. The presence of the living God is with us. That experience leads to empowerment, and then that empowerment leads to evidence. The world knows that God is real, as that spirit of God is played out with its people, lived out among us. There's evidence that God is here. We encounter Jesus through each other. Evidence, another way to say it, is fruit. And in Galatians, the Apostle Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence that the presence of God is with Spirit-filled people, these are things that define them. They're, they're full of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He goes on to say, against such things there is no law. The evidence of God's presence. And when you think about like some of those words, like patience, we live in a culture and in a society that is not patient. Right? We live in this instant gratification, entitlement. All, patience is this thing. It's a total underrated fruit of the Spirit. We're a different type of people because patience. Self-control. That's something that we just don't see. To be people who have self-control, 
peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness. These are evidence that God is here. You, you, you encounter that in other people that you know they've been with Jesus. Like it's like the, the, the fruit of the Spirit just flows out of them. And when you're in the presence, you see the evidence of that. This Holy Spirit empowers the church. It changes us to be a certain kind of people in this world. We experience God, it empowers us, and there's evidence in our life. I want to close today with a time of just prayer and worship to hone in on this presence. What does it mean for us to encounter the presence of Jesus? I think it starts with us saying, I'm open and available and sensitive to what God is doing. Sometimes there's postures that we take that open us up to that. And we're going to spend some time in prayer. And one of the things I want to invite you to do as you're sitting down right now is to just take your palms and to open them up as if you're receiving. If you're comfortable doing this. And we're all going to close our eyes and pray. But when it comes to this presence of of the living God, what I would ask is that as you would open up your palms, you would say, this is a place where I just want to receive that. Let us pray together. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us, for the gift of this Holy Spirit. We need it. And Lord, I ask that you would meet us in this place with this presence that gives us your desires for our life, for this world. Lord, that you would meet us in the different ways that you do throughout Scripture. Maybe it's like a dove slowly descending. Maybe it's like a fire, Lord, that is all-consuming, but is also refining. Lord, maybe you would meet us today and your spirit would be like water. It would be refreshing to our soul. In spiritual lives that feel dry, Lord, you would just replenish us. You would nourish us today. Lord, maybe we are in a situation in life where we're confused, there's great suffering, there's uncertainty for the future. There's things that we bring to you that we don't even know how to pray, that your spirit would intercede for us today, bringing about healing and peace. Maybe, Lord, there are things that have captured our heart, our attention. They feel like they're strangling our soul. And today, Lord, in your presence, we would find freedom, even supernaturally, Lord, that you would meet us in this place and release the things that strangle us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would empower your church, that you would gift us with what we need to be faithful to being your hands and feet in this place. Holy Spirit, come. Meet us today. May your blessing be on your people. It's in your name we pray.